So several weeks ago, I was trying to uh, think what my next sermon series should be and just thinking about things I had read and things that were going on in the culture and conversations I had, I, I thought it might be time to jump back and just look, at, look into some of the prophets and, and do a little series on uh, God's feeling towards religiosity that is divorced from real justice. Uh, and going through some of the prophets, I came up with a title, When God Hates Religion. You know, sometimes you, you want titles to catch people's attention a little bit. I thought this one did a pretty good job with that. Uh, you think, oh, well, God hates religion. Well, he's the one who invented religion. Um, so I thought it might garner some attention and, and lead to some good discussion, and it has. Um, little did I know, as we're going to see later on the sermon, that uh, this would be extremely relevant to things that are going on in our, in our country. And we'll get to that in a little bit. I just want to recap the series a little bit. Uh, so far, we have looked uh, at some of the prophets. For those of you uh, who are Bible fans, you know that the prophets are the ones that God raised up to call the nation of Israel, to call his people back to repentance after they had drifted away from his initial vision for them. God called the people, starting with Abraham, and, and then they, they began to grow and to multiply, and then they were put in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and then God used Moses to lead them out in the Exodus and give them a land of their own, and in that process, he gave them a, a, a covenant, a series of laws, some instructions on how they were to worship and how they were to take care of one another and other people. And over time, as they went to live, and as they got settled in, they started to drift away from God's original vision for them. Sometimes that was they would drift away religiously. They would incorporate the gods of their neighbors and engage in idolatry. And other times they would drift away from God's vision for their uh, communal living, how they were to take care of one another. And they would forsake matters of justice. Um, one of the things that we've seen throughout the entire scripture and the entire Old Testament, as we'll see in the New Testament, is God's concern for justice. Um, and, uh, justice, the way that I have defined it for you, is uh, a concern for fairness and equity with a special concern for taking care of the vulnerable and the marginalized, uh, often including women, children, the poor, um, Strangers or wanderers, we would probably call them immigrants today. These were the groups of people that God was particularly concerned about because they were particularly prone to being mistreated. Uh, so in the first week, we looked at the prophet Isaiah, who was an 8th century prophet, and he brought a, a message of... Uh, from God to the people living in the southern kingdom of Judah. If you're familiar with your Old Testament history, you know that after King David reigned and after his son King Solomon reigned, there was a split and there was it split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So God sent Isaiah to preach a message to the southern kingdom that they needed to turn from their wicked ways, particularly their, uh, the way that they had forsaken justice. They were going about the right religious practices, but they had stopped taking care of the poor and the vulnerable among them. Uh, and so Isaiah went down and he, he called them to repent and told them that they needed to get their act together or judgment would come. Uh, then God sent Amos, who lived in the southern kingdom, sent Amos up to the northern kingdom. We looked at that last week and gave them a very similar message. You need to start taking care of the vulnerable among you, otherwise judgment is going to come. Well, if, you, if you're familiar with Old Testament history, you know that both of these kingdoms continued in their wicked ways. They didn't heed the messages of the prophets. And so eventually both kingdoms were conquered by foreign nations. The northern kingdom of Israel was conquered um, in the year 722 by the um, empire of Assyria. They came in and uh, in 722 the northern capital of Samaria fell to Assyria. 
About 150 years later, the southern kingdom, uh, with, whose capital was Jerusalem, fell to the empire of Babylon. They came in and Babylon took over the southern kingdom of Judah. And both of these um, events were viewed as God's judgment on the people for failing to uphold their end of the covenant. Because they had forsaken God and his covenant, because they had for <coughs> excuse me, forsaken justice, the, these um, these conquerings were viewed as God's judgment. God withdrew his protection from his people because they had broken their end of the deal. And this was to, to wake them up and get them back. So about 70 or so years after the southern kingdom of Judah had been uh, carried away, they had basically all been deported to Babylon. That's how they did things back in. The Babylonian empire came down and they would move people groups around. It was a way to keep control of their empire. So they deported most of the people who were living in Judah to Babylon. And they were there for about 70 years, at, at which time a new king came up and through a series of different things, they were, the, the people of Judah were allowed to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their city and rebuild their temple. Uh, so that sort of brings us to today's text. And, and when they came back from uh, exile in Babylon, they believed that God was going to show up in their city again, in their temple again, that God would show up and bring salvation and restore them sort of to their former glory and their former greatness. Uh, and so the text we're going to look at today is Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58, if you have your Bibles, we'll put the text up on the screen as well. Um, most scholars believe that Isaiah 58 is, was directed toward the, the people who had come back from exile. Uh, scholars who have studied Isaiah show us that there's basically three sections in Isaiah. The, the first portion is directed to God's people before they were carried away into exile. The middle portion is directed to, towards God's people while they were in exile. And then the last portion is directed towards God's people after they had returned from exile. So Isaiah chapter 58 shows a, is, a, is a message that God sends the prophet to tell people who had returned from exile. Here's what he says. This is God speaking to the prophet, telling the prophet what to tell the people. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion and their descendant and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. Now again, this is post-exile, so what we see here is that already, having come back from exile, the people had already fallen into <clears throat> excuse me, rebellion and sin, and God is now sending a prophet again to deliver a message to them to help call them back to repentance. Uh, so that might raise a question, well, what was their error? What was their sin that God was sending the prophet to correct? It's a great question. Here's what it was. For day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. At which point you're like, wait a second. That sounds like a good thing. Right? Aren't we told to seek God? Isn't, isn't that in their instruction there to seek God? This sounds like a good thing. And yet God is, is saying that this isn't necessarily the best. For day after day they seek me out, they seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right. In other words, they're going through the motions of seeking God out, all the while they are still doing things that are not right. And we'll see what some of those things are. Uh, as if they were a nation that does what is right, and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near to them. In other words, they're, they're going through the right religious motions, God says. They're doing the right religious things that are instructed to seek him out. But all the while, in their, in their nation, they're, they're forsaking the commandments of God and they're not doing what is right. Here are some of the 
uh, here's what's going on. Uh, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? This is, this is what the people who were living in exile were saying. They were fasting, right? Fasting was a, a form of seeking God. Uh, what fasting included in that time period was they would, they would uh, keep food from themselves. They would not eat. They would oftentimes take off their regular clothes and put on what's called sackcloth. Uh, think of like a, a potato sack, right? That, um, it's just like this rough, uncomfortable material. Um, that they would they would put on they often cover themselves in ashes or sit in ashes and it was a, it was a, a way of mourning and it was a way of afflicting themselves um, hoping to get God's attention hoping that God would see their their self-inflicted affliction and would have mercy on them it was sort of a form of repentance um, but it was a way for God to say look look at Look at how, what we're going without God. We're trying to get your attention. And they hoped that God would show up and that this would win his favor, that this self-affliction would get God's attention. Um, but when they were doing this, they were going through these motions of, of religious fasting and, and going without food and, and going through the prayers that would accompany that. And, and God still wasn't showing up. God still wasn't, wasn't filling the temple with his glory, wasn't, wasn't blessing them in the way that they thought that they should be blessed as God's people, even though they were going through this outward religious motion of fasting. And so they pray. They say, God, we're, we're going, we're, we're fasting. Do you see what we're going without to get your attention? Why aren't you answering this, God? Uh, we, we've humbled ourselves. We're, we're contrite. Why, why have you not noticed what we're giving up to get your attention? Uh, so God explains to them exactly why. Here's what he says in the next verse. He says, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on High. Once again, they seemed to have this idea that if they just went through the right religious motions, then God would be pleased with them and would show up. This time it's not sacrifices and prayers and assemblies. This time it's fasting and other forms of self-contrition. But they believe that by just going through these religious motions, they would get God's attention. And God says that's not really how it works. In the next verse, here's what he says. He, he explains to them the kind of true fast that really matters to God. Here's what he says. He says, I'm sorry, is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? An acceptable day to the Lord? In other words, he's saying, these things that you're doing, that's, not what, that's really not what gets my attention. That's not really what I'm most concerned about. Uh, this is what you think pleases me, but it's not really what, what really matters to me. Here's what really matters to me, God says in the next verse. He says, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free to, and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the homeless with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? And you think, well, that doesn't sound like much of a fast. That doesn't sound like going without food and in self-affliction and contrition. God says, you're right. 
Because your, your self-afflicted fasting is not really what gets my attention. So if you're going to go without food, why don't you at least give it to somebody who's hungry? If you're going to take off your clothes and wear something different, why don't you at least clothe the naked? Right? If you're going to go without these things, why not focus on taking care of those who have without? It's not about you afflicting yourself, God says. It's about you taking care of your neighbor. God says, this is the kind of thing that gets my attention. God says, if you do this, if you direct your attention, if you devote yourself to taking care of those among you who are oppressed and downtrodden and vulnerable and mistreated and poor and destitute, if you take care of them, God says, next verse, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go out before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. In other words, what the prophet is telling the people, you want God's attention? You want God to bless you? You want God to bring healing to you and your land? You want God's glory to be among you? Then take care of the vulnerable around you and among you and in your midst. Start caring for and providing for and protecting the people who are without, those who don't have access, those who have been mistreated, the poor, the vulnerable, women, children, immigrants, all of the people that are typically mistreated. Take care of them, God says, and then I will show up and bless you and my glory will be among you. It's not about you afflicting yourself. It's about you spending yourself in defense and support and provision of other people. Just in case we don't get the point, the prophet repeats it in the next verse. He says, if you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. If you take care of the vulnerable... God will show up and take care of you. In other words, he says, if you're not paying attention to those among you who are vulnerable and oppressed and marginalized, all the religious practice and devotion in the world is worthless in God's sight. He doesn't pay attention to it. So, I'm going to give you the same bottom line that I've given you the last two weeks because I really want it to sink in. Right? By the end of this series, I want us to be able to walk away and have this sealed in our minds and in our hearts. Here's what it is. God hates religion when it's not accompanied by justice. He doesn't just tolerate it. It's, he doesn't just like it less. Right? As we've seen the last three weeks, he doesn't pay attention. He doesn't see it. He doesn't hear it. He, matter of fact, he says, I hate it and it stinks to me. Last week I asked you if um, you had, the, the last time you remember being around something that just smelled awful, right? And almost prophetically, after service, we had sewage come up through some of our drains, <laughs> right? And we all got to smell that. That, that, that. that smell is what God says religious devotion divorced from justice is like to him. It's not just tolerable, it's like, ugh, 
Okay, that's what God says religious devotion, divorced from justice, is like to him. So again, we, we ask the question, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us? We're not ancient Israel. We're not a theocracy. We're now under a new covenant. We're not under the old covenant. What does this have to do with us? So I want to give you a very current example. Right now, at our southern border... There is a policy in place that is separating children from their parents as they cross the border. In the first six weeks of this policy alone, more than 2,000 children have been separated from their families. Sometimes to the extent of literally ripping a nursing infant away from her mother. Now, this is happening to both legal asylum seekers, those who are coming here legally seeking asylum from violence and oppression in their homelands, as well as those who are coming across illegally. And these children that are being kept by themselves in detention centers separate from their parents, and there are policies in place that, that even if a child is crying and inconsolable, the guards who are watching over it are not allowed to touch the child, to comfort them, to hold them. Now, I have this... This strikes at my heart because I have two very small children. And I know that when things happen, when they get hurt, when they're sad, when they're upset, the most important thing I can do to them is to hold them and grasp them and hold them to my chest and bring them comfort. And they're not allowed to get that. Experts in child welfare are telling us that these kinds of events are deeply traumatic, causing lifelong wounds in children. It takes a lifetime to, they'll, they'll never overcome some of the trauma that they are experiencing right now. So knowing what we've gone through in this series, knowing God's concern for the vulnerable, women, children, the poor, immigrants, knowing what we know about Jesus and his emphasis on caring for the least of these, those who have been downtrodden and excluded, I have a question for us. Here's what it is. Can you honestly imagine Jesus being okay with this? Can you honestly imagine Jesus being okay ripping children away from their families simply because they crossed a border? Keep in mind that Jesus himself was a part of a refugee family. When Jesus was born and was a young child and they found out that Herod was trying to kill the other young children, Joseph and Mary and Jesus fled their homeland because of violent persecution and went into the land of Egypt seeking asylum and refuge. If that happened today, to put this in perspective, and Jesus was born in Mexico or Honduras or Guatemala and they were seeking Asylum, and they came to our border, policies right now would rip baby Jesus away from Joseph and Mary and keep him separate. Can you honestly imagine Jesus being okay with this? The same Jesus who consistently taught and modeled that the law should never take precedence over compassion and the well-being of people. This was a consistent message. He was always bumping up against people who were saying, but the law, but the law, but the law. And Jesus said, but people, but people, but people. Can you honestly imagine Jesus being okay with this? The answer is obviously no. 
The answer is obviously no. If you answered yes, it's time to go back and read your Gospels. It's time to spend some time reading through the stories in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and getting to know Jesus. Because there is no way that you can read the Gospels and understand Jesus and believe that he would be okay with this kind of inhumane practice. So I'd like you to imagine then how Jesus would feel if people tried to use the Bible to defend this separation of families. How do you think Jesus would feel if people tried to use the Bible to defend separating children from their families? You don't have to imagine this happening because just this week, the press secretary of the United States said, quote, it's very biblical to enforce the law. Talking about what's going on at the southern border. The attorney general, the top law enforcement officer in the United States, appealed to Romans chapter 13 in the Bible in defense of separating children from their families. We're going to get to Romans 13 in just a minute. But first I want to take just a minute and, and, and talk about a concept that I think will help us uh, as Christians, and that's this, this concept of biblical versus Christ-like, right? We, we throw around a lot of times the biblical response, what does the Bible say about that? And I'm not sure, and I think it's becoming increasingly clear that that's not the best question, right? Because there are lots of things that are biblical that aren't Christ-like. If you guys want to check your, your tags, if you're wearing mixed uh, fiber clothing, the Old Testament says that you should be punished. Did you know that? It's biblical. You like shrimp? Cut off from your people. It's biblical. Right? There are lots of things that aren't biblical. Yes, separating children from their parents is biblical. You know who tried to do that? Herod. It's in the Bible. You can find a verse to support it. You know, the Bible throughout history has been used to support War, oppression, slavery, and genocide. In real life, people have appealed to the Bible to support all of these things. They pulled verses out of context and said, look, the Bible says this. Not paying any attention to the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. They've just found a verse in the Bible that supports what they think. They say, look, it's biblical, so we should do it. Now, there's lots of us who would say, well, you know, that's not the right application of the Bible. But I think there's a principle here that, that even for those of us who aren't Bible scholars, who haven't been trained in hermeneutics, which is biblical interpretation, there's a principle that can help us. Instead of asking if it's biblical, maybe we should start asking, is it Christ-like? Does it look like Jesus? Because we are Christians. We are followers of Jesus. We're not just followers of the Bible. If you ate bacon this morning, you know that, right? We're not just followers of the Bible. We're followers of Jesus and the new covenant that he instituted. So using this standard, asking, because there's lots of things that are biblical, but there's things that are biblical that aren't really Christ-like. And so if we use this as a standard, we can be absolutely certain that separating children from their families is not Christ-like. This same Jesus who said, suffer the children to come to me and do not forbid them. Separating children from their families 
is not Christ-like. So now I want to take just a minute and talk about Romans chapter 13, since this is the passage that the Attorney General appealed to to support these, this heinous policy of separating children from their, from their families. Just as a bit of background, I want to point out that this is also a passage that was appealed to by the Nazis in the Holocaust. The Nazis appealed to Romans chapter 13 to support their actions in the Holocaust. This is a passage that was appealed to by the government in South Africa during the, the time of apartheid. This is also a passage that was appealed to by white southern slave owners during the time of slavery in justifying their practices of slavery and ripping slaves from Africa, separating them from families, and, and all of the things they did. They appealed to Romans 13 to justify their actions. So what does Romans chapter 13 say, Thomas? That's a great question. Here's what it says. It says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. So you can see how, apart from any other kind of context, this text can be used to support anything the government does, right? If the government is instituted by God to carry out uh, justice and, and rebelling against the government uh, will bring punishment, you can see how, uh, divorced from any other context, this can and has been used to justify any and all actions by the government, including slavery, the Holocaust, ripping children from their parents at the border, right? So this is why, when it comes to biblical interpretation, it is so important not only to, to fit everything within the framework of Jesus and, and what he taught, right? Because Jesus is our model, and he's our Lord, and he's our teacher. And so if, if a particular interpretation of something doesn't look like Jesus, if it doesn't feel Christ-like, that gives us, we should think twice about it. But also this is why it's so important when you're reading the Bible to understand the context that it comes from. Both the literary context within the greater passage as well as the historical context. What's going on to occasion this letter? Great question. Paul is writing this to Christians who are living in the city of Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. Just a few years prior to this, there had already been some conflict between Jews, Jewish Christians, and the Romans. And the Jews and Jewish Christians were expelled from Rome for a period of time because of some unrest that they had caused. Uh, there also, the, the teaching of Christianity taught new Christians that their, their true citizenship was in heaven. That their true Lord was Jesus. And so there were some who sort of believed that this gave them over to sort of the, in anarchy. If Jesus was their true Lord, if, they were, if their true citizenship was in heaven, then they didn't really need to pay attention to the laws of the land. 
And so they just believed there was sort of the, this belief that there could be, you know, anarchy and, and, and whatever they wanted to do because they had this newfound citizenship in heaven. So what Paul is telling them, he's saying that, that newfound citizenship in heaven is not a blank check for anarchy. What God is telling them is that God can and does use civil authorities to keep order and provide for the common good. Paul is saying that, that God can and does use civil authorities. That he, he can use them to, to keep order and provide for the common good. And so a, a wholesale rebellion against all government is not what they should be doing. That's what Paul is writing to these Christians. He's also telling them, because in, in the previous chapter, he told them that they were not to avenge themselves as Christians, but that God would use civil authorities to keep order. And because of that, they didn't need to avenge themselves. So within context, we see that Paul, here's what I want to make clear. Romans 13 is not a divine rubber stamp on all government activity. Romans 13 is not a divine rubber stamp on all government activity. It's important to remember that Paul himself, the one who wrote these words, was himself executed by the Roman government for proclaiming that people should give their allegiance to King Jesus as their true and rightful Lord, right? This led to him being executed by the same authorities he just said to obey. So obviously Paul himself did not obey the government in all things because he was executed for proclaiming someone else's Lord and telling people to live in a way that made Roman government nervous. Okay, so we have to keep context in mind here. Basically what Paul was saying is don't make any unnecessary waves. The message of Christianity, he says, is radical enough as it is that you don't need to make unnecessary waves. We have enough trouble already as a persecuted minority that we don't need to do extra to draw attention to ourselves. Right? Paul himself was executed by the same government for preaching that Jesus was the true and rightful king who deserved people's allegiance. So here's the point I want to make. To use the Bible... To justify oppressing and harming the vulnerable and marginalized is to practice the very kind of religion that God hates. God hates the attorney general using the Bible to justify separating children from their families. Folks, this is the kind of stuff that leads to divine judgment on entire nations if you read through the scriptures. This is not a joke. This is the kind of thing that the ancient Israelites were doing that God then sent in foreign nations to conquer them because they had forsaken justice and were using religi religiosity to cover up their injustice and their sin. To use the Bible to justify oppressing and harming the vulnerable and marginalized is to practice the very kind of religion that God hates. So, I want to now address the main concern that I have seen among well-meaning, good-hearted, sincere Christians. And that's this. We don't want children to be separated from their parents, but they broke the law. That is a legitimate, real concern coming from good-hearted, sincere, well-meaning Christians, right? What do we do? Because we generally do believe that the rule of law 
is a generally good thing, right? We're thankful that we have laws that protect us and, and, and have, uh, have systems that will protect us. If, if we're wronged, we can go to the justice system. And, and yes, our justice system has some, some deep flaws in it, but it still does good for a lot of people, right? So this is a generally good question. So what I want to point out here is that not all laws are just and fair. Some laws are wrong. You already know this, right? Laws that allowed slavery were wrong. They were unjust. They were bad. In the history of the United States, as well as the history uh, uh, you know, in other countries, not every law is good. Not every law is just. Not every law is moral. Sometimes the law can be used for bad things. So when that happens, we have a choice to make. And this brings us back sort of the, the, the ancient Hebrews, the, the rabbis and the scribes, they, they had a way of, of comparing laws and principles with one another. And they would sort of use the idea of weight and balance. And, and if two laws sort of came in conflict, if two principles came in conflict, the weightier one would get preference. Right? So one of the ways that we know this is, is there was debate over, there was, there was a law saying that you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. There's also a law that you're supposed to take care of people and animals. And so if an animal fell into a pit on the Sabbath, the, the weightier of the laws to protect life was to rescue the animal. And so when Jesus came along and he, he healed someone on the Sabbath and the Pharisees came along and they said, well, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Jesus brought this principle up to them. He said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He, he, he told them that compassion for people always trumped strict adherence to the law. Compassion for people always trumped strict adherence to the law. So I've written a little poem to help you remember this, to help you make judgments in the future. Here's what it is. If disobedience to the law of the land means... Oh, I'm sorry, if obedience to the law of the land, if obedience to the law of the land means disobedience to Jesus' command, we ought to obey God rather than man. If obedience to the law of the land means disobedience to Jesus' command, we ought to obey God rather than man. Right? And we see this in Scripture. We see Peter and John standing up to the, the, the lawmakers of their day saying, well, I know that you told us to do this, but we're going to obey God rather than man. So yes, as Christians, as good citizens, we do submit ourselves to the law so long as that law is in accord with God's law. But if obeying the law of the land means we have to disobey Jesus' command, we ought to obey God rather than man. Separating children from their families is in conflict, it's disobedience to Jesus' command, who told us that we will be judged by our treatment of the least of these. So I know that there's a lot to this, so I want to take just a couple of minutes and allow you, if you would like, to ask some questions, and I will try to answer to the best of my ability, and if I don't know, I will tell you I don't know, and look up something else. So. Because this is current and, and going on right now as part of the sermon series, do you have any questions or concerns from a Christian standpoint 
about this position. Okay, well, either I was very clear or you're too nervous to ask in public, either one. <laughs> if you have questions uh, and you want to talk afterwards, please feel free to pull me aside. I'd be happy to sit down and explain my perspective and my heart and my research to you. Um, so in light of all of this, in light of the fact that we've seen today that God says that the thing that we can do that most pleases him is by taking care of those who are vulnerable and marginalized. That if we want God's blessing in our lives, we should pour ourselves out and spend ourselves on behalf of those who have been hurt. You might be asking, oh, okay, well, what can I do? What can I do living in Bloomington, Indiana, to help address this problem going on in our nation as a Christian? That's a great question. What can we do? So because of that, I have uh, asked Kristen. She has uh, put together for us a little flyer uh, with certain things you can do. It has the, the contact information for our representatives here in Indiana, for our senators and our congressperson, it has their phone numbers, as well as a little script if you would like to call your congressperson and, and share. There's, there's even a little script there, so you don't have to come up with what to say, that will express your concern about what's happening at the border. And you can tell your congressperson that you don't support this policy. There's also on the other side of the sheet um, a list of three different organizations that are working to help bring justice and compassion and um, uh, and change for these groups. And so if you'd like to, maybe you're not comfortable calling a congressperson, maybe you can't go down and volunteer, but maybe you have a little extra money you want to you want to donate. There are some websites that you can um, log on to and you can donate to organizations that are providing real tangible relief. I wanted to make sure that we had a real-time opportunity to, pro to, to do something to help bring about justice to those who are being oppressed and marginalized in our own country. So we will have those at the back as you leave. Uh, so, once again, God hates religion when it's not accompanied by justice. God hates when the Bible is used to defend injustice. God loves when his people pour themselves out in service to the marginalized and the vulnerable. This is the kind of thing that God pays attention to. This is the kind of thing that God loves to respond to and bring his blessing upon. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for preserving these things in Scripture for us. We thank you for your heart for those who are lost and vulnerable and marginalized. God, that's, that makes you a God that, that is so different from all of the other so-called gods that people worship, that you are concerned for those that nobody else is concerned for. Father, we thank you that you have kept these stories for us, Father, as a we, we know that right now there are things going on in our nation that, um, that you hate. Um, the separation of children from their parents and the use, misuse, abuse of the Bible to justify that. So Father, I, I, uh, for those of us who, maybe, who may feel convicted for this, I, I pray, um, you know, I just pray that you would Help us to repent in areas that we have been complicit in this. I pray that you would give us a new heart uh, for, for what's going on. I pray that you would intervene uh, in our lawmakers. You've, you told us through Paul in his letter to Timothy that we should pray for our, our leaders and for those in authority. So, God, I pray that you would bring them to account and that you would give them a change of heart, that you would help them to see uh, what's going on through your eyes. Uh, Father, I pray that there would be swift changes and that these children would be reunited with their parents and that this abominable practice would be brought to an end and that you would be glorified. 
Father, I pray that you would help us to know how we ought to respond, uh, that you would give us wisdom and courage, and that you would help use us to be an instrument of your healing and reconciliation uh, and not an instrument of division and pain. Thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.